Good morning, everyone. Well, today we're going to move into a section of the hero's journey that really is the place where, I guess, all of the important revelation takes place. Of course, it's important that in our story we understand that God is calling us. It's important that in our story we recognize that there is a place of completion, a place where God fulfills what it is that he's promised to us individually and collectively. But it's the middle part of the journey that is perhaps the most significant because here in the challenge, in the valley of the hero's journey, that we discover all of the truths that will define our life. They'll define our life and they'll define the ways in which our life becomes a pattern and a model for other people. It's interesting to me that even as we've begun to explore this pattern of storytelling within the Bible, the hero's journey, we've begun to see it emerge more and more in our culture. Taylor Swift's most recent song and video is, of course, picturing this whole pattern within our lives of the hero. And that song, Antihero, is, is something that is her seeking to deal with the struggles, the inner conflicts that put her in two different positions within her life, the hero or the anti-hero. It's fascinating, isn't it, that as we engage with these big pictures, that we become more and more familiar with this pattern played out in the pictures and the icons and the stories and the narratives of the culture around us. And of course, it goes back to a very deep and illustrious past. The story of Job is perhaps one of the most famous stories that, that we can remember or recall from Scripture. Job is a person who has become this image, this icon of a person faithfully walking through the experience of suffering and loss. Even people who don't really know the Bible understand the story of Job. And perhaps the reason for that is that Job probably, and maybe this is true even when you compare it with the rest of Scripture, Job is one of the great pieces of human literature. From ancient times, this story has been told and retold. This story of, of conversations, the first conversation being the conversation between God and the devil, where God points out Job to the devil who has come into the council of God, into the courtroom of the heavenly king after wandering the world as he describes it. And he points out Job, the Lord points out Job, and, and Satan says, well, of course, you've blessed him. He's the most blessed man in all the world. He has, so many, he has so many flocks. He has so many crops. He has so many children. He has so much blessing. Of course he's faithful. Let me take them away. This, this literature of conversation, the conversation between God and Satan, the conversation between Job when all things are taken away, marauders come 
and steal away his, his wealth and kill his children. His wife tells him to curse God and die. He's lost and alone. And his religious friends come to him, offering him the solution that they believe will give him the answers to life. And of course, the solution is this, that Job recognizes that the things that have happened to him have happened because he's done wrong things. Now, it's not true. The reason that these things have happened to Job are that the devil has taken the opportunity and the initiative to steal away, to rob and to kill, as is his identity, as is his want. But his friends, his religious friends, come to him day and night, Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz. They come to him one by one, and in these beautifully poetic conversations, perhaps representing the zenith of human literature at the time, still today looked upon as great jewels in the crown of human history. These conversations all revolve around the religious theme of what is it that you've done wrong, Job, that means that these things have happened to you. Job, wrestling as he is with loss and devastating suffering, has to deal with the burden of people accusing him of things that he's done that have caused the suffering that has been brought to him by the devil himself. I know no folks here have ever had religious friends offer them counsel that's felt more burdensome than blessing. So here's Job. A man, a story, defined by conversations. And those conversations are the conversation between God and Satan, Job's friends and himself, and then finally between Job and God. And in the midst of these conversations, Job discovers darkness and light. In the midst of the darkness, he bumps into illumination. For us today, as we consider both on the macro of our life and the micro of our day, we have a journey to take, a journey framed often by conversations with others and with the Lord. And that journey is a journey that will be defined by a sense of calling to engage with the day, a challenge in the midst of that day, in the midst of that week, in the midst of that year, in the midst of your life, that challenge. And in that challenge, you'll often find yourself wrestling with difficulty, with conflict, with with personal struggles and burdens. And often, as has been so eloquently revealed to us by the conversation with the members of the respite household today, 
often that challenge will feel like darkness. What is it that you bump into in the darkness? Job bumps into two things. And they're beautifully illustrated by something that someone revealed to me a long time ago when I was a young Christian. They said, have you noticed that the two most important things in life are on every door in England? And I said, I don't, I don't believe I, I do, no. Uh, let's just put the first slide up if we could. There it is. That's the common door in just about every part of the world, but definitely in the English-speaking world. And uh, I said, what do you mean? They said, well, it's a cross and Bible door. Just about every door is a cross and Bible door. And if you'd only see that every day, you'd realize that there is a way through every circumstance that you're in. Now, of course, Job's life and story is defined, is written, is beautifully and poetically portrayed long before the story of Jesus emerges within the counsel of God. But Job, in his time, bumps into redemption and revelation in the midst of the dark. And the reason he bumps into these things is that he's repelled by the counsel of his friends. These religious people who are so focused on sin management that they have no understanding of what it means to walk with God. People who are so focused on counting, enumerating, and somehow dealing with their particular sins have no understanding of what the original sin really was. And so Job finds himself repelled from their counsel, and as he's repelled from their counsel, it's as though he bumps into the things that God wants to reveal to him in the dark. Listen to his words. He's just heard the counsel of one of his friends and responds in these ways in Job 19, verse 23. Oh, and just, just marvel at the beauty of the poetry. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with iron on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart 
yearns within me. Job is being squeezed, and as he's being squeezed, what's within him, of course, is squeezed out of him. And what it is that's coming out of him is an absolute trust and faith that God is on his side, that God is not choosing to separate himself from Job's suffering, but is choosing to be with him in his suffering, and he will reveal himself still more if only he'll continue. His Redeemer, in revealing himself, will bring redemption. Job knows that in the midst of all of his suffering, all of his battling, all of his, all of his conflict, internal and external, he knows that God is a God who has committed himself to him and will reveal himself to him. And of course, Job is correct. And, and what is it that God in the end will reveal to Job? Well, he won't reveal to Job the innumerable sins that his friends are trying to identify. What God will reveal to Job is his fundamental need because it's built on the original sin. Now, there's lots of talk and lots of imagination built around the idea of original sin. And we assume that original sin, because of the way that we tend to enumerate our sins, is to do with self-centeredness. And it isn't. Self-centeredness that leads to us doing the stuff that we want to do. Self-centeredness is built on something more fundamental. And it's so fundamental that it's ingrained into our understanding of the way that we work and ingrained into the understanding of, of who we are as, as people. And it's ingrained into our culture in such a way that we celebrate it rather than reject it. You see, this, this fundamental issue is so fundamental that we just don't see it. A bit like the cross and the Bible on the door. We don't see it because it's there all the time. And strangely, as Americans, we celebrate the very thing that is the reason for our self-centeredness. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, because we may as well find out what this is. What do you think? Because if we can find out what this is, then maybe we'll find out some solutions to some of the things that we're facing in life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is the beautiful, again, poetic story of how Satan tempted the first humans. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? 
The woman said to, to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, what we tend to do is we focus on these things. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable. In other words, we tend to focus on the self-centered nature, the self-centeredness of our appetites that drive us to do the things that in the end alienate us from God and from others. That's what we tend to do. And we tend to assume that what it is that is the story, the narrative of salvation, is dealing with that. Well, of course, it is dealing with that, but it's dealing with that because it's dealing with the thing that's deeper than that, the thing that's more important, the original sin. The original sin is not self-centeredness, but self-reliance. Turn to your neighbor, say, self-reliance. Self-reliance. What is it that the devil tempts Eve with? You will not die. You'll be like God. Being able to do whatever you want. It's not self-centeredness that's the problem. It's self-reliance that leads to self-centeredness. And here we are in America. What do we celebrate the most? Self-reliance. Oh, God, help us. Because we've made an idol of the original sin. The thing that Job must discover in his valley is what God wants to redeem him from. And let me tell you, It's not the innumerable sins. It's the cause of them. We're self-centered because we're self-reliant. And we're self-reliant because we've heard the echo of the enemy's words telling us that we can be the God of us. Job, in the midst of his darkness, bumps into the light of redemption. Because what it is that God does and crafts into the life of Job is a realization that yes, he's lived a noble and good life, that he has not committed the sins that his friends seek to enumerate. But he has been self-reliant. And because he's been self-reliant, he's not been God-reliant. And because he's not been God-reliant, he's not received 
all of the things that God wants to give him because it's in reliance upon him that God is able to do the thing in us that is the most precious and glorious thing. And we'll get to that in a moment. So what else is it that Job bumps into in the midst of his suffering and darkness? He bumps into redemption. Redemption from the original sin of self-reliance. But he also bumps into revelation. The need for revelation, the cause of revelation, the place of revelation. In other words, in the darkness, he discovers where the light that will illuminate his path forwards is to be found. Listen to these amazing words of, of Job as he reflects again, being repelled by the counsel of his friends. It really is perhaps one of the great statements of poetic insight in all of human literature. I can only read portions of it, but turn to it and go home and read it again. Job 28 is a piece of astonishing, beautiful, stunning, revelatory literature. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the darkest blackness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft he places in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of rivers and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Do you see what Job's doing? He's saying, people know where the treasures are to be found. They're found in the darkness. They're, they're prepared to go through all kinds of privations and disciplines. They're, they're prepared to go through all kinds of of personal difficulty and, and, and struggle. They dig shafts into the ground. They dangle and sway in the darkness. They look for the treasures hidden there. And they're mere, they're mere creatures of God's spoken creation. And yet, we barely 
make any effort to find the thing that God has for us, which is far greater. The treasure of his wisdom. Verse 22, destruction and death say, only rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. Verse 28, and he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now, it's very important that we understand that, of course, Job, this great expression of human literature, this great expression of divine revelation, is part of the story of revelation, which is an unfolding story. Revelation unfolds. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, verse 12, he said, he said there's lots of things that I need to tell you, but you can't bear them yet. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will reveal to you all things. In other words, even in the life of Jesus, the great revelation of God, the Word of God, there was the necessity to understand that revelation is unfolding, and as each revelation builds on the previous, so we come to clearer and clearer understandings. What does the fear of the Lord mean? Does it mean a cringing respect for the power of God? Does it mean to honor God above all others? Well, it probably means at least those things. But Jesus gives us the interpretation of the fear of the Lord. Because Jesus, at the end of his first great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, has a parable, a parable of a foolish builder and a wise builder. And this is the completion of the great sermon that will define Western culture for millennia. And here in this parable, he concludes all that it is that he's been speaking about in this most glorious of sermons. And he says, the man with wisdom, the person with wisdom, is a person who hears my words and puts them into practice. So Jesus has defined what it is to fear the Lord. He's defined what it means for you and I to be people of wisdom. People of wisdom, people of revelation, people of God's word are people who hear what it is that God is saying and then put it into practice. Foolish people are people who go to church on Sundays and hear the word and then don't put it into practice. And they're building their life on sand. And when the pandemic comes, they lose it all. When the storm comes against their house, there's no foundation. Because God has been speaking to them, Jesus has been speaking to them day after day, week after week, but they've not put it into practice. And so there's no foundation and it falls down. 
the wise person, the one built on the rock, the one whose house is stable in the midst of the storm, is the one who fears the Lord. And what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to listen to him and to put it into practice and to shun evil. What is it to shun evil? To choose not to listen to that first temptation to be reliant upon yourself. And so, Job kind of puts a bow on the gift of his story. The gift of his story is the story of a person walking in the darkness of suffering, of loss, and of pain. And in that darkness, bumping into redemption and revelation, bumping into the cross and the Word of God. These are the precious gifts that if you look for them in the midst of your valley, you will find them. What of, what of evil? What of, the, what of the one who has perpetrated all of these things in Job's life? What of the one who sought to bring destruction to Job? What, what's his part in the story? Job asked that question at the very end. And God enigmatic in his response gives a reply that can only really be understood with the perspective of the New Testament. Job 41 verse 1 is God responding to Job's questions. And God begins to reveal to Job that the great pictures of evil that he and his contemporaries within their culture recognize are the pictures of evil set against them. The picture of Leviathan. The picture of the chaotic deep. The sea that seems so powerful that is this chaotic presence that is unruly and appears to constantly rebel against God's desire for order, the great waters of the earth that seem un unchecked and unparalleled in their, in their majesty and their power, the creatures of the deep who seem beyond even the wit of man to understand. This picture that they have within their own culture of a rebellious place where Monsters live that represent the things that consume them. This is the place where God works. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down the tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? 
Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him for your slave? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide up him for the merchants? You see, here the Lord is speaking to Job of Leviathan, this, this crocodile monster that seems impossible to subdue for humanity. This picture of power and unbridled evil. God says, I'm wrestling with the evil because I'm involved in your world. I'm not separate. I am God. I am sovereign. I do inhabit the heavens, but I choose to step into your world, and I choose to struggle with the evil that is set against you. And your question, like, like Job's, is this. Well, why don't you just put an end to it so that we don't have to deal with it anymore? And the answer is this. That God wants you to step into the struggle with him and reclaim your birthright. Listen. This will change your life if you listen to this carefully. God doesn't want to destroy evil for you. He wants you to step in and partner with him in destroying evil for everyone else. You see, God never chose to create human beings so that they could somehow be distant, uninvolved, and just the recipients of blessings and boons from his hand. All of those things are true. But he created us so that he would have partners in creation. And as partners in creation, he wants us to be harnessed to him, working with him, wrestling with him, so that we can fulfill the nobility of our birthright, which is to be the representatives of God. And yes, there is an angel that has fallen and he's taken many angels with him. He wants us to work against that. He wants us to work against them. There is a day. There is a day when all the battles will be finished. There is a day when the clash of weapons will not be heard again. But until that day, God is looking for a partner. A partner in redemption, who work with him to reveal redemption to the world, who work with him to reveal his loving heart, the revelation of the life of Jesus to the world. And in doing that, we discover the great victory of the cross, which is that he has defeated our enemies. In that, 
we discover the great call of the Christian life, which is to stand with the full armor of God against the principalities and powers. And when we have done all, to stand. In this, we discover the great victory that is our faith, says John. And why? Because there are so many people. So many people lost in the valley. So many people lost in the valley. And the best that they've got is Job's counselors. God help them. Who tell them about their innumerable sins instead of a redemption from the original sin of self-reliance. People lost in the valley who need to hear from someone who relies upon God how to do it. Someone in the valley who needs to hear from someone who knows what it means to seek first the king and his way of doing things. And when you do that, he takes care of everything. That's what the world needs. And God is looking for us to be the ones that do that. Is there an amen in the room? But of course, it may be that today you wrestle with your own valley. Because the valley is the preparation for you to meet others in their valley. And unless you acknowledge and accept that this is the place where God is meeting you to reveal to you redemption, reveal to you the revelation that will guide your life so that his word is a light to your feet and a lamp to your path. This is the place where you learn all of the necessary skills and disciplines that will, that will prepare you for the next valley where not only are you to go through it, but you're to help others. So today, it's time for us to acknowledge where we are. Are we in the valley right now? Is there a place where the valley is expressed in our life? And are we in our valley prepared to receive what it is that God gives us? Are we prepared to bump into a fresh understanding of his redemption? A fresh, a fresh outpouring of his revelation and in that find ourselves equipped transformed and ready to touch the lives of others. If that's you today, then this has been your word, your sermon. And if today you are in that valley, I really encourage you, as the band comes and leads us in the completion of our time of worship, that you respond in the normal way. Respond by using the body that you have to pray the prayer that you're longing to pray to God, which is, God, meet me as I walk 
meet me in the midst of the valley. Meet me with redemption and revelation. And if you come, I promise you, you won't find Job's counselors here to pray with you. You'll find people who've been in the valley themselves. And they're ready to share with you what they know. Let's pray together.